Hello, hello. Welcome back. 大家好 Welcome back. It is week four of nine of our AAPI Army campaign for 2021, and we're gonna start off with everyone's favorite: a trigger warning right up front. Because this week, oh man, it's um, yeah, we're not holding back. We got new survivor, and there will be lots of mentions of sex, sexual abuse, child labor, trafficking. You know, all the fun stuff. We have a great time on the show. So. And just be aware if you need to take some time for yourself, and please remember enthusiastic consent always. And don't forget if you know someone who wants to join in, join our army, but isn't a podcaster, doesn't like to listen. Everything you hear will be uploaded onto our website blog at theemotionalabusediscussion.com. There is something for everyone. All right. Now back to、uh, fun and trafficking. <laughs> yeah, I'm not funny. Our next interviewee is a survivor of child labor and trafficking, and this is an issue that is、um, it's more common than you guys would probably think. And then later in life, she worked as a sex worker, as a stripper, and found it to be this really empowering experience and helped her heal from years of sexual abuse and trauma. Now. Let that point sink in. I know that you're probably thinking, "Wait, worked as a stripper and found it empowering." It, it's kind of hard to think about that and relate sex work to a survivor, right? Especially in a culture where we love to slut shame women. <gasps> Did you see her leggings? Oh, scandal! And come on, we're a culture where we get stuck on the idea of enthusiastic consent. I mean. How many guys are out there running around going, "Oh, I can't ask. Oh, is this okay? It'll ruin the mood." Please stop claiming asking for consent will ruin the mood.、Mm. I mean, especially if you're Asian. I mean, <clears throat> China doll stereotypes, sexy geisha.、Mm. We'll get back to that. The point being, we have an issue admitting that women like sex. That women can be empowered by sex, certain kinds of sex, even maybe even empowered by sex work. Okay, so wait, hold on, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. Yes, there are so many survivors who suffer from rape and sexual assault by their partners, and they are so traumatized by it. And we need to hold space for them and to love and validate them and their experiences. But we cannot forget those who. Enjoy sex with their abuser still, and they do exist. And whether that's because their partner, you know, is really that good at sex, it can happen, or because the sex is the only form of loving contact still left, we still need to support them and not minimize their experiences or shame them for it. And also, we really need to hold space for those who really enjoy or are empowered through sex or sex work as a whole. Both. Sides exist. Now, circling back around, it's extremely important, especially for AAPI individuals, due to you know historical and ongoing, current, literally every day of my life, objectification, fetishization, otherization, exoticization, sexualization, all the Asian nation stations. You know how many times I've been hit on with, "What are you? Oh, you're." Asian, wow! Your male gaze is equal parts racist and misogynistic. Good for you. That must have、uh, must have taken a lot of work. <clears throat> and in all of this, 
there's a connecting thread. Let's touch on it. Whether it is objectifying women, fetishizing them, hey girl, you're so exotic, or shaming them for wearing leggings, <gasps> scandal, or denying that women enjoy sex or they choose to work in sex work, common thread here, women are stripped of sexual agency. They are stripped of the choices they make with their bodies. And as allies and survivors, we are all about helping people embrace themselves, make choices for them, what they truly want, recovering their agency. Mm -hmm. And on that note, please welcome Nieva. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So can you start by saying hello and introducing yourself? Like give us your name and a little bit about like what you currently do. So my name is Nefa and what I currently do is I have a business that's centering in emotion body healing. So I help giving ideas and advising people not prescribe medication, but more like changing your mindset, your em- healing your emotion, exercising, changing your diet, a lifestyle that can not only healing you in the long term uh, for right now, but also in the long term. So it's just the whole package of mind, body, spirit, alignment, healing business. You're like a mental health lifestyle guru. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. We're both, um, you know, Asian survivors of domestic violence and abuse. And, you know, you're here today to share your story with us. And I'm very grateful for that. Let's just start with your story. You know, what is your story? Whatever you feel comfortable with, we would love to hear it. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad to be here, first of all. Um, (laughs) I have been through unusual childhood trauma. Most people know it by CPTSD. When I was a child, I went through physical abuse, sexual abuse, and I was transported around living throughout foster care, foster home until I ended up in the sweatshop. A little bit flashback from that. I was born and raised in Indonesia. My parent, biological parent is Chinese Indonesian, and I was given up for adoption. So I moved to Taiwan and I was living in a totally different country, but I only lived there for about six and a half years. And I (laughs) went through a lot during those time. And I endure abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, foster care system. So today I'm 44 years old and I feel like I have I turned out great, I think, for my standard, not to the world standard, but for myself, for my standard. So uh, I learned and made mistakes along the way throughout my life. And I realized tools that I have using to help myself, like always look internally and always grow and help myself evolve and to become the person that I want to be. Not what other people expect me to be, but who I want to be. And I'm I'm pretty happy with how I turned out. <laughs> so I thought I'd help people with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty happy with how you are too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you came to the United States? 
So after I moved to Taiwan, <laughs> actually, funny you should mention, um, my biological parents knew about uh, where I am, where I end up, which is a, a form of foster care where they actually, not really a foster care, it's a sweatshop. And I was physically, sexually, mentally abused for three and a half years. So throughout that three and a half years, my biological parent actually tried really hard to save up money and try to get me back. And they did. Um, they failed a couple of times, but in the end, they did. My biological mom won lottery jackpot. Wow. In <laughs> like millionaire. So um, she came and she sent my father and got me and I grew up private school in Indonesia. I grew up educated. After I finished college, I went to work for about a year or two, but my mom decided there's a better future out there called United States. So she sent all of my, most of my siblings to United States and we ended up in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia in 2000. I was 22 at the time. That's a really incredible story. And I'm so glad that you're here now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so how do you think your cultural heritage affected your story? Being Indonesian Chinese? Oh, first, the reason why I talk about my mom won lottery and I come out, I grew up privileged. Image is everything. What we look on the outside is more important than how we feel on the inside. And as a child surviving trauma and abuse, it's hard for me to not talk about it or to not to hide it. And I was pressured to hide that side of myself. But it can be really hard when your family quite known in the neighborhood and in the community because of money. <laughs> People were shocked, like, where did you come from? I know this family. I know we have, you guys have a lot of kids, but you just show up out of the blue. I was like, yeah, mommy went back to Taiwan and got me out of the sweatshop. <laughs> and that's like very hurtful and insult and slap in my parents' face, kind of like, why did you say that? You were trying to hurt me, trying to ruin my reputation. And, you know, it's image. But as a child, I didn't understand that. Like, I don't care what I look like or what other people think of me. I'm just a child. I don't understand why that should be important. I'm just being authentic. So I, don't, I hope that makes sense. It does. It really does. It, did this actually happen where you tried to tell curious neighbors and family friends that you know, your parents rescued you from a sweatshop and you actually were criticized because of that, because of yeah. sharing your story? Punish, not just criticize, punish and bully and being told I was crazy. And then starting to have my siblings told me I'm delusional. It's only my head. It never happened that you were just a bad child. You just get spanked just like every child. Because, you know, in Indonesia, getting spanked, children get punished physically. And it's a common thing. But I know in my head, like, mm -mm, that's not true. I know my story. And I was very stubborn as a kid. <laughs> I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. 
Oh, thank you. (laughs) So after you were punished for trying to tell, you know, your truth, your authentic self, how did it change the way you interacted with people inside your family and with outsiders in terms of like asking for help, you know, when you needed it or when you felt bad? I became very ultra independent, very defensive. I shield and shut down and shield myself from the world. Like um, if I have a problem, I need to take care of it. And also one of the benefits of my family teaching me, it's so embarrassing to let the world know your flaws. You should always look perfect. It almost, I almost adopted that lifestyle. I'm very working on, uh, into working on my own problem, take care of myself and don't let the world in and don't let the world know or help me. I'm just on my own. But also thinking about um, how if I don't need help from anyone else, why should I worry if people know about the sweatshop? I also have that side of me. I was about to ask how you came, went from this really you know, closed off childhood where you were punished for speaking out to being someone who was so open to speaking with me. Is that kind of where the switch happened? You just went, I don't care. This is me. I have never not be me. Like I have always been this open since I was a kid and I get punished for it, but I just kind of like, I don't care. What's the worst thing could happen? I've been through the worst. <laughs> so Reading into that a little bit, does that mean your family still denies your experience to this day? Yeah, unfortunately. It's hard, I guess. I I think about it as, I think it's harder on them to know that one of us is having been through so much suffering and the guilt, perhaps, it's hard to accept, I guess. So I I see it that way and I forgave them. But they've never admitted to you or said, yes, we know this happened. They've never kind of confessed that truth or talked about that with you after you left the sweatshop? No, the best they have done is acknowledging it, like not denying, not no longer punishing me or tell me I'm a liar or that it's in my head, but more like next conversation, please. (laughs) Uh, so they acknowledge it by not punishing you, but they sort of still brush it under the rug. Oh, all the time. Still do. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay. Thank you. Do you feel like this dynamic that you have with your family, including like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, they're acknowledging it, which is good for me, but the acknowledgement is kind of like brushing it away. You know, this feels very similar to what I experienced in my Chinese family. And it sounds very similar to what you're experiencing. So do you think that's a very common reaction in a lot of um, Asian families like ours? You know, I noticed it's very common. It's more common than I realize. (laughs) And do you think that this dynamic is difficult for people who are not from Asian families to kind of accept? Hmm. In a cultural aspect, I would say yes. In a family um, dynamic, like internal family system way, no. Basically, what I'm saying is every family have its own skeleton in the closet. Every family have its own some kind of dysfunctional system in going on behind the curtain. But for an Asian culture side, like if I look at it in from an Asian aspect, 
a lot of non-Asian family probably don't understand how important it is like respect and honor that you can bring into your family. How if you show the world that you were, you've been wounded, hurt, and under the protection of a parent, then you have dishonored the parent. That in that sense, no. A lot of non-Asian culture probably don't understand that. I feel the same way. Do you think there's a stigma against you for the fact that you are a Chinese Indonesian survivor? Like, would it have been different if you were blonde, blue-eyed American? Oh, wow. Uh, huge different. Huge different. Uh, there's a good thing and a bad thing about it. One is um, as a person of color survival, um, there's this sense of in America, we're talking about like in America, the way people see, view me, right? Yeah. yeah. Sense of like, they see person of color or maybe just me, or maybe it's just my personal experience as if, if I'm from another country, then I'm automatically stigmatized as coming from poor, the jungle Asian, <laughs> which is not true. I, I grew up in Jakarta. It's like 30 million people in a tiny town. The city is like very modern, like very big compared to most of the city in United States actually. So people thinking that I'm from the jungle is actually not true. I'm from a big city. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's the wrong stigma. But I, I, I like it. I, I don't bother trying to change people's mind because if as long as they're coming from a good intention, um, I, I don't try to change it. Maybe it's wrong. I'm not sure. Maybe I should have. But I don't know. It's not my job, I guess. I mean, I think you captured it right there. It's not your job. And I think that for a lot of us Asians, mm-hmm. there is this fear that if we push back too hard against people, like, oh, they have their assumptions about us, they could always kind of kick us out or like take it out on us, right? So it seems easier and less dangerous to kind of challenge that than just be like, oh, let it go. Speaking of that, now that you mention it, I have had many experiences when I, the first few years I was in the United States, where I try to explain to people, no, oh, I'm sorry, that's not true. I'm not from the jungle, not a third world country. And then I get this uh, ego trip that they have, or maybe defensiveness. I'm not sure where is it coming from, but then I get this aggression saying such as, oh, if you don't like America, you should go back to your country. Or if you... If your country and where you come from sounds like amazing, why are you here? I just don't want to attract that kind of attention to myself. And I don't want to argue. It's othering. They're, they're othering us. I get the same thing. Like, where are you really from? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I actually, that was my fault. We went off on a tangent. So you had some great points you were bringing up about uh, the stigmas that you face because you're not only a survivor, but you are... Chinese, Indonesian, Indonesian, Chinese, you're a survivor of color. So mm-hmm. sorry, steering back to your good points. Are there any other stigmas you feel like you face because you are um, a person of color, you are an Asian survivor versus if you had been like a white American survivor? Absolutely. Now, first of all, I want to clarify that I'm aware that survivors have fawning and all this behavior pattern that coming from um, trauma, like ref- afraid to argue, setting uh, trust issue or setting strong boundary or lack of boundary. Those are uh, patterns from trauma and you need to be healed. And I'm, I'm acknowledging that. But non, 
but sometimes people didn't know that uh, or maybe not properly educated or not familiar with that. So they see those behavior from me as I'm very submissive. I'm not very smart, perhaps because I have an, an accent and also because I was a survivor. Maybe I'm not very comprehend or knowledgeable about the world or people or the way in our society. Also, perhaps because I'm from another country. So there's combination of all, which mm. is not true, by the way. You don't have to prove to me. I know how smart <laughs> and amazing and beautiful you are. So I <laughs> <laughs> oh, I totally get that. Okay. Well, which I I can forgive and understand where they're coming from, why they prejudge, because uh, there's a reason why we need that, like prejudging people, but don't let that get past and holding us back from connection between uh, society is what I worry about. For example, if I go down a dark alley alone at three in the morning. I will always be aware, hyper aware and alert. And anyone that walk past me, I will prejudge them. Sizing them, is can I kick his ass? Is he bigger? Is it he or she? You know, things like that. That's normal, that's okay. But what I'm talking about is uh, the pausing, take a moment to take a pause and then see me as a human being as a person, not just my trauma. I am not my trauma. I'm not my gender. I'm not my body size. I know I'm 411, but I'm not, (laughs) you know, like get to know me first. Then perhaps you'll, you'll know better and you have a better idea about who I am. That would have been better. Hey guys, this is Ariel from the for the future for the episode, but past for your current day reality. Just a heads up, right now we're getting into Neva's time working in a strip club. So if this is going to be upsetting for you because you have trauma in this area or if you're very uncomfortable, just as a heads up, skip ahead around five or so minutes. Okay, just going to exit quietly. Shh, don't mind me. I think that this is something that survivors really overlook. Um, not just not, sorry, not just survivors, but people in general, they think about survivors in any connotation connected to sex. And they're like, oh, boo, bad, right? But yeah. I know. That's so what's your, what's your take on that? <laughs> sexual trauma te- needs sexual healing. Self-esteem trauma needs self-esteem healing. Sometimes it may come across as narcissist and egotistical kind of take on, but sometimes... It, it's kind of like a pendulum, right? You swing pendulum, it can swing back and forth, one extreme on the other, eventually goes to the middle. It becomes centered, you, authentic you. So you need one, extreme circumstances need, need extreme measurement to heal. It, actually, in, in ancient Chinese culture, they, we believe in that too. Like when someone get hurt, they use poison to heal poison and it works. It's kind of like that. So um, you worked as a stripper. You say that you think this experience actually helped you heal from your sexual trauma. In what way? Um, Because uh, put me into the driver's seat, put me from my victim mentality into I'm in charge. And then there's this part of me that feel the anger and rage and take it out on men, 
Now I'm in charge. People cannot hurt me, say or rape me, and they just from a distance look at me naked and admire me, but they can't do anything. And the, uh, in the strip club, I don't know if you know this. There's a thing called VIP room. Mm-hmm. VIP room is a private room where, okay, first of all, strip club have camera in the parking lot, in the club. The only place that does not have camera, it, by the way, also in the dressing room and in the manager offices, mm-hmm. all area because safety. <laughs> the only place that does not have camera, I don't know about every strip club, but the one that I work for in Atlanta, it, was, it happened to be like a, one of the most famous and the largest strip clubs. So um, the only place that does not have ca- camera is bathroom and VIP room. So VIP room is uh, where dancers can ask for more money instead of $10 a song. One song is about last two to six minutes, if not 10 minutes, and you make $10 a song. You take off the clothes and put by the end of the song. But VIP room is actually um, 30 minutes for $150 starting price. I can charge whatever I want. But, you know, with competition, I can't just say $1,500 when all of my coworkers charge $150. That's no one want to see me. So, um, so in a VIP room, people have this fantasy like, oh, do you get sex, this and that? And I, I think the, that's the wrong stigma that society have. The truth is the most money you make from the VIP room is never from sex. I'm not saying no one ever done it. I'm saying that's not where the money is. <laughs> so that's, uh, I, I go to the VIP by taking people that have king, like, um, of course you have to set in the, the right mood and if that person feel like it, like I can pull out their, their belt and yell at them, treat them, insulting them, tell, and I take out all of my rage about patriarchy and, and male <laughs> society. <laughs> And I beat them with their belt. (laughs) (laughs) And I would scream at them. And I sometimes I go overboard and the guy was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, this is too far. I'm sorry. (laughs) 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 But you have facilitate the healing. Thank you. (laughs) So you would make money in the VIP rooms by um, acting out um, a kink scene with a contact that was consensual. Oh, you were getting paid for Oh yeah. And they tip me. Oh my gosh. That's an amazing story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that happened a and, lot. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Not saying that everyone uh, out there should now go um, find a strip club and start beating uh, clients with belts, but, no, no. <laughs> no, don't. but no shame for those who do and have found sexual empowerment from it. You guys rock. Most people are kind. They care enough to say, wow, I'm so honored to be able to help you heal. Here's more money. How amazing is that? People are nice. Thank you for sharing that story. That was an incredible story. What would you say to other Asian survivors who are in the United States and dealing with you know, similar backgrounds to you, similar stigmas, what would you say to them if they're looking to heal from their trauma? 
the hardest part of healing from trauma and living in the society where you feel like you have this trauma and people don't around you probably don't know or don't understand. I would say the hardest part is being too hard on ourselves. Blaming myself, like, was I at fault? Is my clothes too sexy? Did I ask for it? I think it's very toxic that society have that mentality that makes me check all the checkpoints to see if something bad happened to me, is it because I am my fault? And I have to go through that list. And no, no victim should ever, ever, ever have to doubt. All means no, but why do we live in a society where we have to feel that way? I mean, it's not a real question when I say, why do we? But I wish society aware of it. And I wish victim constantly being educated or uh, 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 know that it's not your fault. Don't be so hard on yourself. The reason why, and being so hard on ourselves can cause depression, suicidal thoughts. And, you know, people always say, get over it. No, you can't get over it. It's, it's scar. No. And to heal one day at a time, and you'll never, ever, ever actually going to heal 100%. And that's not a bad thing. That's just saying, oh, it's who you are. And love that wounded part of you. Love that hurt part of you. And I know the world doesn't give us the kind of love and affection and care that we needed when we were wounded, but we can give that to ourselves. For the rest of our life, we can't say, oh, I'm done. But literally, you have to do that every, for the rest of your life. It's your responsibility now. You are the caretaker of yourself. Love yourself. Because like how you would like to be loved. I think that was a perfect place to end. That was such a beautiful quote. And thank you for having the courage to share your story. And so candidly with me, I loved it. I love speaking (laughs) with you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. That was a really important interview for me. I feel like my entire life, my Chinese-ness, my Asian-ness has always been tied to this sexualization, right? The bullies of my childhood that would pull their eyes back and call me C-word eyes as I got older were like, oh wait, you're Asian, I have ownership over your body. And we will be doing a deep dive later on in our AAPA Army campaign, really getting into kind of the root of where does this sexualization come from and why does it still exist and how it is still perpetuated. But for now, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Neva. She is like the best person ever. I love her so much. We all have stories and they deserve to be heard. I'll see you next time for week five of our AAPI Army campaign 2021. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone.